I went out the front door and climbed onto a bicycle. The house that I was leaving that morning was not my home. I'd lived there for most of my life. My dog was buried in the yard, but it wasn't my home. That much had become obvious. My bike was from the op shop. I'd bought it for $30, but in fact it was probably worth much less than that. I rode into the bush reserve and found a narrow, winding path with slicks of mud on it. Remnants of the past few rainy months. Clay mud that reminded me of those tubs of unctuous chocolate I used to eat for morning tea. Yogo, it was called. God knows what it was made from. Most of the bush was stoic, silent about the change of the season. Native cherries, casuarinas, eucalypts, all expressionless. But on the other side of the reserve there were wattles, decorated with baubles, as if for some strange variant of Christmas. And now that I think about it, it probably is like that for them, the biggest event of the year, the festivity of fertility. The yellow pom-pom blossoms, an homage to some goddess of the Acacian imagination, maybe. They lined the road, and the asphalt would have yellow pollen strewn upon it, like crushed-up saffron. I was riding to the cemetery to meet a girl. Goldfinches raced me there, red and yellow tufts from the other side of the earth. The bike clanked and clanged as I descended to the creek line and clattered as I pushed it back uphill. Graveyards always have the best wildflowers. I couldn't name a single one back then, but knew well enough that flowers were romantic, that they motivated you, that they promoted optimism, that they helped you dream. There was some herby weed that put out a flower prolifically, pink petals that were scattered all throughout the grass. It was as if they were popping up before my eyes, like my sight helped them grow. I guess I never was one for provisional statements. September has come, I said. Spring has sprung and everything is going to be all right. Later I rode on. I don't know the exact chronology. Sometimes it seems that there was a sequence of cycling trips through the suburbs that lasted for years. The brakes on my bike were so rusty that I had to squeeze with all my might to come to a stop. So maybe sometimes I simply chose not to stop. And took the bike to all the edges of town. Where the rivers ran fast. And sheep stood in fields of brassica where school children in shorts created shadows that stretched as long as their memories of those afternoons would linger into the future. And gusts from the south would throw sprigs at their feet like bouquets or laurel garlands. Eventually I brought the bike to a halt. It was still September, but I'd made my home elsewhere. 
I stood at an upstairs window with a mate while the rain came bucketing down as whitewash all over Launceston. I said with the utmost confidence, this will be the last of it. I was never one for watering down my certainty. The view from that window opened up and colour came upon the hills. And the light was clean and dazzling. It made the mountain's profiles stand out, well-defined chiselled jawlines. A rainbow leaped out from behind the horizon like a flying trout. I murmured to my friend, September has come, and everything is going to be all right. to say that the colour of wattle blossoms reminds me of a snack that I used to eat as a kid. Chicken twisties. A sort of chippy that was more like packing foam, and which had that kind of electric neon MSG yellow that the wattles have as well. The wattles are surely Southern Australia's most significant symbol of spring, but they aren't the only one. Birds return, marsupials give birth, whales begin to migrate. And actually most years, for me, the best marker, the easiest way to tell that spring has begun is the return of a very strange critter. A migratory animal that is largely endemic to Tasmania but sporadically becomes a vagrant in other parts of the world. I'm talking about myself. can no longer count how many times I have landed in Launceston Airport after a stint away, returning to the conditions of spring. Suffice to say that before this year, I'd had only one full Tassie winter in the past decade. Now I'd like to say that I don't leave because I dislike anything about the winter. It's just that traditionally all my work dries up and I have nothing better to do than squander my savings on a long jaunt somewhere else. But I guess this year was a bit different. So I saw out the Southern Hemisphere's coolest, darkest months. I did so in an unpowered train carriage off its tracks and lined with books like some locomotive library that's been abandoned in a relatively lonely patch of bush by the mountains of central Tasmania. And I have to say, I absolutely bloody loved it. Only a little bit do I miss the sensations and sentiments that come from travelling overseas. The rhythms of a long journey. All the unusual stimuli, the other languages and strangers. The miniature circles of every story interlinked within the broader narrative of those months away. All those cycles of meeting and farewell bookended by the original farewell of leaving the island and the most wonderful hello of all. Hello again, 
landing in Lonnie, walking across the tarmac beneath familiar mountains, which are perhaps snow-capped and no doubt sending a brisk breeze sweeping across the open aerodrome as I go off to retrieve my backpack from the conveyor belt inside the terminal. In such circumstances, I have made countless reunions, often unannounced, having walked from the airport through back roads lined with bare hedgerows to my own mother's door or my old share house. Now I'm remembering a night where I roamed between pubs, rounding up mates who hadn't heard that I'd left town, let alone that I was back. And in the back room of one such tavern, I came upon a friend clutching the handle of a plastic jug full as a goog with a local ale, as if she'd been waiting for me to rock up for the past six months. The back bar was bordered with poorly constructed trellis that had jasmine climbing up it, thin vines strangling the cheap timber offcuts like an anaconda and the flowers gave off a scent that almost overwhelmed that of cigarettes. Here he is, she said. Great to have you back. But you missed the best part of the year you did, she said. I suppose it was one of those years in which I'd strung together three summers in a row. It was hard for me to think that I was supposed to envy a winter in Lonnie but my friend quickly countered my sarcastic smile. Not that, mate. The best bit is that moment when winter turns to spring. And there is a definite moment. Takes less than a minute. It's when you notice that something's changed. The wind still blows, and the frost might still settle on the ground and snowmen keep building themselves on the plateau. But maybe there's a different light, or a different look about the sky, or you get a different moon, I don't know. The breeze has a different message. Maybe it's just in your head. Suppose we all reach the spring at our own time, don't you think? This word, spring, it's a ripper, isn't it? Boing. I think of the coil in my clicking pen, or the suspension in my Peugeot. Or I guess you could imagine the water that bubbles up from between the rocks. And you think of plants coming back to life, animals getting out of hibernation. That first echidna who comes wandering out of his hidey hole gawking about, looking for ants to eat. Let's look it up, she said, started flicking through her phone. Oh, spring up a new hairdo. Haven't heard it used like that before, but apparently you can. I see you've been springing up a little beard there. Did I ever tell you about when I sprung up me first pubes? (laughs) Spring is spontaneity. Spring is emergence. Things reappearing. 
Spring is dreams that you can ease into life. It's strangers or cobbers who pop up happily when you least expect them. Nights at the pub that turn into mornings elsewhere. Road trips to nowhere in particular. And conversations that could go bloody anywhere. Usually on my way home, I'll spend a few days in Melbourne. I'll catch up with a handful of mates who will all have their winter tales lined up ready to be told. We'll go down to the pub and watch the footy over the last pints of stout. And deciduous trees, those odd imported things, will be mostly bare in the gardens, although the magnolias will have started to put on plump pink flowers and the magpies. They'll swoop and then return to their branches in order to innocently sing some melodious tune. In Tasmania, the magpies don't swoop. I'm told that this has something to do with the fact that there are fewer magpies here, or that they have more habitat. Something familiar like that. Overcrowded animals become aggressive. I get snarky too sometimes when I'm packed into city streets, backed into a corner without enough space to stretch out or get some solitude. In Tassie, what we have in abundance is plovers, who breed in wet weather and lay eggs in late winter, colonising sports grounds or paddocks or nature strips or verges, making life difficult for bike riders and pedestrians everywhere. They are angry birds who strut around in bright yellow masks, threatening with a shrill staccato call, a distracting war cry which is often followed by dive bombing. I suppose it was in school that someone told us that these birds bore a sinister talon on one or another of their wings, which could have a fatal effect if it was to even graze a child's skin. In turn, we had somewhere been advised to hold a stick upwards at the sight of a swooping bird, was like lifting up a golden idol, a talismanic act which seems to have worked since no plover ever did tear my eyes out or inject some black poison into my bloodstream, and this despite the fact that I trespassed almost every day onto their property. Even where I am living now, I will often hear the palaver of a bunch of plovers, an unmistakable call that the air picks up eagerly and multiplies in echoes against the mountains. Sometimes there will be one in the neighbour's yard at night, sniping at something, or nothing, as if it's just remonstrating with the darkness or with existence in general. For a long time I wondered why plovers were so surly, and if they didn't have imaginary enemies. 
or just a grudge against the world. But last spring I watched a gang of sulphur-crested cockatoos making a real ruckus over their paddock, and the plovers rose up barking at them. And I realised that a nest must be set up in the long grass there, and in that moment understood why plovers were such defensive birds. Because these nests are so very vulnerable, and mother plovers must always be ready to arc up at a moment's notice. They remind me of certain families I used to know, who also lived on the edge of town, who I suppose were accustomed to being victims, who responded with anger, with shouting, assuming the worst and preempting it. They too were fiercely loyal, and the source of their aggression seemed to be a kind of intergenerational trauma perhaps the result of their precarious existence, trying to give birth and raise young with predators all around them. Once my younger cousin and I saw a two-dollar coin on a cement footpath, yellow and round like an oversized wattle blossom. We'd both spotted it at the same time and lunged for it, I was two years older, and so naturally, I won the race. I spent the next little while gloating about my newfound coin, tossing that thick golden disc in the air over and over, until inevitably I lost it. I flicked it into a stray tussock of long grass, and no matter how much of the grass I tore up, the coin was not found ever again, was gone. Instead, I exposed a plover nest. Four beautiful, speckled eggs, each as blue as a memory. Hidden treasure. Truly worth defending. So my cousin and I covered the nest up again and hoped that the parents of these eggs would be back when the fine shells cracked and revealed four chicks ready to take on the world. Thank you.
It was only last week, walking along the sea cliffs of southeastern Tasmania, that I accepted that spring had begun and remembered what it was all about. The track I was walking on wound its way through newly flowering shrubs, bushman's boot lace and guinea flower and honey myrtle. And I realised that the promise of spring is that of all the paths that might open up, roads that become available with better weather. And I got excited at the prospect of journeys here, there and everywhere. Then, looking through some notes this morning, I noticed that the poet Basho wrote exactly the same sort of thing in a haiku. Omoshiro, he called the spring, which I've seen translated as enticing. And that's exactly how I feel about the possibility of a road trip right now. And when Basho looked up, he saw what he called a tabi no sora, a sky of journeys. And I reckon that's about right. Some skies look like they've been placed there like an upside-down stage, a setting for adventures. But it's a strange year for this sort of optimism. And promises like these aren't offered everywhere. Open roads aren't guaranteed in a year where restrictions are coming and going. Who knows what the upcoming months will bring. In itself, it's a perfect spring metaphor. We can't count our chickens before they've hatched. I'll never forget arriving in Europe for the first time. It was February, I was in Germany's east, and winter's grip was unrelenting. I didn't see any colour for weeks. At least that's how I remember it. I travelled further north and therefore got further away from seeing spring's arrival. It was as though the grim grey weather was eternal. I made a circle through Eastern Europe and in May I crossed the Alps and got back into Germany, this time from the south. I hitchhiked into Munich and walked across the city to meet a mate in the English Garten. It was a splendid sunny day and flowers were blooming all throughout the park, and all of a sudden the people had metamorphosed into smiling, charming people unlike any German I'd met under overcast skies. They played ball games on the grass, sat in the beer gardens laughing, made makeshift picnics, and took their clothes off at any opportunity. I'd found it hard to make friends before, but now strangers approached me and began to tell me things. Gregarious Bavarians who seemed to have a penchant for singing and wearing costumes and spouting little aphorisms that didn't quite make sense in translation. It was spring, and everything was opening up. Body language had changed, and the setting for most of Munich's activities now took place outside and living outdoors allows more opportunities for strangers to interact with you. That's what I love about warmer weather. A few days later I met a man who shared a piece of wisdom with me. It was almost nonsense. And yet the sentence still stays with me, as perhaps the finest description of our times I've ever heard. I recall it like it was yesterday. I was walking down a suburban street in the city's south, a street fittingly called Sonnenblumenstrasse, 
or Sunflower Street. This chap interrupted me as I went silently striding past his yard. Perhaps he recognised me as a traveller, for he started telling me about his daughter, who had been working in Central Australia. We spoke a while about that part of the world, and on the great distance between them, and I told some tales of my own, I suppose, stories of working remotely, and perhaps we discussed something of the nature of geography and politics in general, as sometimes happens in conversation with me. And it must have been this which got my new friend thinking. For in conclusion, this bloke gave a broad smile and declared, Well, such is life, I guess. And it's getting suchier and suchier, you know. Thus spake the Bavarian prophet. <laughs> suchier and suchier indeed. There's another of Basho's poems that I've copied out. It's a bit of a laugh, really. Ah, Haru Haru, it begins. Ah, spring. Great is spring, or so they say. Mostly I feel the same. I'm loving this turn in the season. But spring in a world that gets stranger every day, suchier and suchier, is not pure, unmixed bliss. It's not without its tinge of darkness, too. Bad news slips out on good nights sometimes. It was a few Septembers ago and I was standing around a backyard bonfire. For the past few days I'd been off the grid. I slid down wet and windy roads into town with half a myrtle branch sticking out from beneath my car. It had started hailing just as we got the bonfire going. But we were in western Tasmania so the party was always going to carry on. Spring comes late out west, I guess. Sometimes you sense it never comes at all. Over the pile of hissing wood, someone murmured euphemistically, then turned to me and asked, Did you know him? The news was that a good bloke was gone forever. In the morning mist, the pub and the post office, brightly repainted and Federation era, looked like absurdist birthday cakes. I walked over to the footy ground, the infamous gravel graveyard, the oval that may well be made of tailings. Yeah, I'd known him. Not well, but actually we'd once played a game there in Queenie, on the gravel. This was where our lives had intersected all too briefly. 
The two of us were as skinny as plantation eucalypts, but we both played hard and by the end of it had skinned knees and were drenched to the bone. I picture us post-match, in the typical posture of the dressing room, absolutely buggered, we'd plonked ourselves down on a bench, leaning on our knees, taking deep breaths, snorting out quiet laughter through our noses as we recounted some of the moments of the scrap. And yeah, we were probably sucking back a beer as well, I guess. Now the grandstands were empty. The outer wings, like far-off planets, uninhabited. Water ran in channels across the surface, forming big puddles. This time I was in my hiking boots, stomping the gravel down. The ground really is made of fucking gravel. (laughs) There are big chunks of rock in the centre, smashed up conglomerate and quartz. On the outside of the oval it's a bit sandier. And there, tiny sprouts of vegetation try and pop up, looking like some kind of dune weed, marum grass. Plenty of footballers, I dare say, have walked onto the gravel in a state of grief. They've run out there with teammates missing, those who've died in the mines, on the roads, at their own hands. People who've heard the news second or third hand, down the grapevine, on the bush telegraph. Had someone ask him, did you know him? I recently read a report from Siberia in spring. There the snowmelt brings floods of silt and mud, many avalanches that undermine life in the towns. Everything flows in the spring, said an old woman on the street, as if it was the greatest of many injustices she'd faced. The death of my old footy teammate a few Septembers back. It wasn't the first or the last. For some reason, among all its other meanings, spring seems to be a season of grief as well. These are strange statistics. Every year in my circles, come the end of August or September, we lose someone irreplaceable. Some personality with an enigmatic edge, some brilliant mind, inventive and sensitive, for whom the sadness comes to be too much. Why spring? Because they'd bunkered down through the dark and cold of winter and thought the sadness would fade and it hadn't? Because the winds actually picked up, and more snow is forecast, and the flowers just aren't enough? I don't know, really. It's a type of misery with a mysterious power. I mean, most of us have waded through the same shit, but ultimately been able to believe we'd eventually come out of it, that it might just take a season of waiting. But some of these mates of ours have been waiting too long, and it's a dream which has fizzled out, I guess the truth is that hope, like tragedy, doesn't care to give you fair warning. Back in the car, I drove with an empty mind and wound my way back to Launceston, then wandered to the Royal Oak Hotel for the wake. But as I walked past the park, I picked a sprig of blackwood and put it in my pocket. 
couple years earlier in the aftermath of another September tragedy. A mate of mine had gone ahead and quietly planted that same tree along a bush track. Unannounced, without a plaque, yet as if on our behalf, in memoriam nevertheless. So I pocketed a leaf of grief and walked into the bar, where I found a cast of mates on the dance floor before a concert of loud guitars, clutching pints of Guinness or each other, lips kissed and regrets whispered and confessions spilt and grudges given the flick. You just wished they were all there, all the ones who'd come so far and hadn't gone on, who'd given it their all but hadn't found what they were looking for. He just wished they were there. Again and again we say farewell to winter without one of our mob in our midst. Once again we gather with other grievers, another motley club in mismatched and multicoloured guernseys walking out onto a field with a teammate stricken from the list, so to speak. Like a repeated motif, I pick a blackwood leaf and put it in my pocket. I still don't know what I think such a gesture achieves other than it's a reminder. Like pinching yourself. Look around you. Listen. Give everyone a go. Remember the seasons. Watch for the passage of time. Keep old stories on your tongue. Preserve memories. Bring them into the present. Let them teach you for the future. As for me, I'm back in the bush. This morning on the way back from the shops, I saw lambs in the paddocks. In one field, two lay dead. And instinctively I thought, God, it's a hard world. But I try to stay close to another bit of wisdom I once learned at the onset of another spring some time ago. Words which I'll attribute to some old Siberian woman, although I think I made them up myself. Watch those blossoms. As it is with them, reasons for optimism come on all of a sudden. Springs are hastening. And it's like, if you give your little hopes an inch, they might just take a mile.